All right, good evening, everybody. It's time to get started with our Bible study this evening. Um, kind of a prick, quick briefing on <laughs> what we're going to be doing tonight. So Barry's out of town. He's gone for the rest of the year uh, on a cruise somewhere or something. And so we've got a couple Wednesdays left in our quarter. And so next Wednesday, uh, I think Chad is doing a recap of Daniel to kind of close that out. This Wednesday, we're not doing anything related to Daniel at all. This is going to be a complete, uh, like, one-off, so um, you don't have to worry about Daniel at all. Um, why are we doing it that way? Just because that's how the schedule worked out. It doesn't make sense. It's a continuity error. Just please overlook it. Um, but we're going to be doing tonight at Barry's recommendation. We're going to kind of actually circle back to uh, what I had done an invitation on a couple weeks ago about some of the prophecies about Jesus' birth in Isaiah um, and so what we'll do is we'll talk about uh, some of the prophecies that are in Matthew chapter 1 that, are, that discuss Jesus' birth and look at kind of how a biblical prophecy works in those prophecies to kind of get a sense of um, how to think about it. It's maybe a little bit different than uh, kind of the conventional way that we might uh, intuitively think about prophecy. Then we'll look at the actual prophecy uh, in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8 and talk about that and then wrap up with some applications about that. Um, this is obviously going to be a really cool class, um, and it'll have like lots of interesting stuff that maybe you hadn't thought about before, or it's going to be super confusing and a total train wreck. So my like, my rules would be like, we'll try and have participation as much as possible. Um, it might be a little bit more guided than what I typically like to do, which is just like read the text and say, what did you notice? Um, and like, no hard questions, softballs only, um, <laughs> right? This isn't like... This isn't stump the chump. Uh, so you're welcome, you're welcome to ask hard questions, but I might not have uh, an answer for you, but we'll, we'll do our best to discuss it together. Um, before we jump in, uh, let's go to God in prayer. Uh, fathers, we all before you now. We're grateful for this time that we have to gather together as a body of your children and to uh, be with one another and to uh, be in your presence and to study your word and to... Uh, seek to know you better. We pray that you would bless us in our study this evening, that you would help us to approach your word with open hearts, that you would help us to seek to see you and not what we want to see, but to truly draw nearer to you. We pray that you would bless us in that. It's in Christ's most holy name we pray. Amen. All right, so first thing we're going to talk about are some of the prophecies about Jesus' birth that are in Matthew. So if you want to open to Matthew chapter 1, that's where we're going to get started. So we're going to go through, I think there's three or four prophecies um, that are referenced in Matthew chapter 1 that Matthew uses kind of as evidence for Jesus being the Messiah. So the first one is going to be uh, in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 20, 25. Or, sorry, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18 through verse 25. Now the birth of, Christ, Jesus, of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke from his sleep, from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Okay, so this is the first prophecy in Matthew chapter uh, 1, and it is a reference back to Isaiah 7. So we'll kind of keep that in mind. We're going to come back to Isaiah 7 later on tonight and look at, a, look at that a little bit more in depth. But this is the first prophecy that shows up, and in verse 23, that reference is back to Isaiah chapter 7. The second one we're going to see is in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Anybody know what passage they're referencing? Micah 5, 2. Yeah, so let's read that uh, in Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. All right, so in context, what is Micah saying? Like if you're reading this in Micah's time, what would you think that this means? If you were somebody who was living in Micah's time and you read that passage we just read, Micah 5, 2 through 5, what would you think that passage means? Kind of without the advantage of foresight to know what happens later on in the story. Okay, yeah. So it's going to be somebody from David's lineage. Maybe more broadly, what, what would we expect? Another king. Another king, yeah. So... I think what we're seeing here is this is a pretty explicit prophecy about Jesus, right? Like, it's saying, hey, there's going to be another king from the line of David. This king is going to be the ruler of God's people. It's a pretty direct, explicit prophecy talking about Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. So the next prophecy we want to look at is uh, Matthew 2, starting in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, anybody know where that is from? I hear people whispering it. You could say it. Isaiah 
Hosea 11. All right, so let's read Hosea 11, starting in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Okay, so in context, what's, what's Hosea saying? Yeah, so he's talking about Exodus. So he's actually describing what happened in Exodus. You're right. Um, what's the prophecy that's being given here? He's saying that the people of Israel will come out of captivity. Okay. Is he? Like, is that what Hosea, Hosea means? Anybody want to back Josh up? I think you're right, Josh. But within the context of Hosea, there's not actually a, a prophecy here, right? Do you see the difference between this and Micah? Like in Micah, it's pretty explicit, like this is going to happen. Whereas in Hosea, Hosea is just describing the history of Israel. There's not, he's not actually speaking prophetically at all. Now, Josh, you're, you're kind of jumping ahead of the game because there is an implication about what is happening in the future, right? Because what, what happens in Matthew? He uses it as a prophecy. He, he quotes it as a prophecy and says that when Jesus is going down to Egypt with his family, that's fulfilling what Hosea says. But Hosea is not giving a prophecy within the immediate context of Hosea 11. Does that make sense? Kind of weird, right? Okay, so we'll come back. Sure. Yeah. But if I'm reading this, I don't find that it's going forward at all. If I'm a Jew at that time, I'm thinking past tense. This is what we're called out. Look how we misbehaved. It's all history. Yep. You're spot on. So what we're going to kind of see is, hmm. Okay, that's kind of weird. Maybe not all of the ways that God is speaking in prophecy is necessarily like in X number of years, this is going to happen. So you're, I think you're on the right track. All right, so let's read the, the next prophecy, Matthew chapter 2, 16 through 18. This one's kind of a tough one. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because there are no more. All right, so Matthew kind of gives you, the, gives you the answer there, so I can't ask you where that one is, but it's from Jeremiah uh, chapter 31, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. All right, so within the context of Jeremiah talking, what is he talking about when he's talking about Rachel weeping for her children? Okay, destruction of Jerusalem. 
at what point in time? Yeah, so he's talking about the, the effects of the Babylonian captivity and the ramifications of that on the Israelite people before Jesus is ever born. Okay, so we have another instance where he's talking about a historical event. And once again, it's referenced in Matthew. So what is that? If, if Jeremiah is talking about this historical event, what does Matthew, what does that have to do with Matthew's application? Why is Matthew referencing it here? Okay, maybe just an analogy. I think it goes a little bit further than that, but I think you're, that's kind of the right train of thought. Yeah, so in Jeremiah, there's this sentiment of Rachel is weeping for her children, but then it's followed up by the idea of there's going to be restoration. So then when Matthew references this again, it's, it's a parallel. Um, and this is kind of giving us, getting us to where I want to go with this. There, do you see the parallel between there's this emotional pain of the, the mothers of Israel because their children have been taken away and have been killed during this Babylonian captivity, and then there's a promise of, of restoration for them in Jeremiah. And then we see a similar uh, event happen in Matthew chapter 1, where these women who are in uh, Bethlehem, I guess, have their children being killed by Herod. And then Jer or Matthew references this prophecy of Jeremiah, indicating, oh, also in this instance, there's going to be restoration and that restoration is going to now be an escalation of what you saw in Jeremiah because the restoration is the king that was talked about in Micah 5.2. It's going to be the Messiah. Does that make sense? So what maybe do we learn from these passages about how biblical prophecy works? It works in all different ways. <laughs> okay, yeah, it works in all different ways. So what different ways do we see in just from these few prophecies that we looked at? things are interconnected, right? So we see these explicit pro prophecies of like Micah is saying like, hey, this thing is going to happen and it's pretty clear about what that thing is. And then we've also got these prophecies that are, are sort of um, less direct, right? Like in Hosea. And that is maybe the idea of like um, archetypes or like parallels and escalations. And we kind of understand this in the stories that we tell, right? Like if you watch Star Wars and you watch Lord of the Rings, both of them have a character who's kind of like the older mentor to the protagonist. You got Obi-Wan, you got Gandalf, but they're still like the same kind of character archetype. And so the same thing happens in the Bible. We see different um, types and shadows of the same thing, right? So really easy example of this, Abraham sacrificing Isaac is a parallel to G or God sacrificing his son Jesus, right? And so we're supposed to see from that kind of a, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Um, so kind of the way that we want to think about this is not necessarily in like 
a Harry Potter kind of way of like, there's this prophecy of like the chosen one who's going to come to bring balance to the force, but also that there's this idea of God is using historical events to foreshadow what is going to come in the future. And so there are things throughout biblical history that are intended to draw a picture of what he's then going to do in Christ. Does that make sense? We're all on the same page. Yeah, Josh. Yeah, I think that's a great way to uh, describe it. We use the term prophecy a lot, um, but I think the idea of like a sign or foreshadowing is also a good way to think about it and is maybe like language that's a little bit more accommodative to like the mental model of what's happening here. Any other questions or comments on that? Cool, okay. So with that, let's jump into Isaiah chapter 7 and look at this actual prophecy that we read already. Um, so we'll look at Isaiah chapter 7, starting verse 1, and just kind of like a note to like help us. If you read the word Ephraim in this, that is a term that's kind of used interchangeably to describe Israel. So anytime you see the word Ephraim, it pretty much means like the nation of Israel. All right, so let's read Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king or son, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the, king, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God. It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So for a little bit of historical context here as well, this is after Israel has split into the northern kingdom, which is Israel, referred to here as Ephraim, and Judah, which is the kingdom that Ahaz is king over. So what are some of the most important things you would identify in this text that kind of set the stage of what's going on here? Yeah, so Ahaz is afraid that he's going to get um, basically conquered by these other two nations. What is significant about that uh, in relation to what Isaiah tells him? Well, to the human eye, it looks like a very large army. God says it's nothing but a smoldering branch. 
Yeah, so the armies that are coming against Ahaz seem to, uh, I guess, by human standards, to be a pretty formidable foe, but God is saying that that's not something that he needs to be worried about. Worried about. What else? What maybe are what would maybe would be the ramifications of this attack succeeding? Okay, so Jerusalem might be destroyed, and who who in particular is in danger? The lineage. Yeah, so at this point, like, kind of going into this narrative, there's a threat of, like, okay, God has promised to David that his lineage is going to continue, and now, if these forces are coming against Judah, and they get to Ahaz and kill him, that promise is now in question. Anything else you guys notice uh, in these first, first nine verses? What do you guys think about Ahaz's reaction uh, so far? Like, where, where, what's his headspace at? Yeah, he's afraid. You notice where he is when Isaiah is sent out to meet him? He's going to check on the water supply. Because if you're about to be besieged, it's pretty important to make sure that you're going to have water coming in. So Ahaz is in a mindset of he's not trusting God. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's read uh, the actual prophecy that is given to Ahaz uh, in chapter 7, starting in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. All right, so basically what happens here is Ahaz is told, hey, ask for a sign that God is going to deal with your enemies and you don't need to be worried about it. And he says, I'm not going to put God to the test. And it sounds like, okay, that, that's good. Uh, but really what he's kind of saying is, I don't want to ask for a sign because I don't want to trust in God. So Ahaz is, is basically refusing his charge here to put his confidence in the Lord. And so then verses 14 through 17 are all kind of one cohesive prophetic message. And so we need to kind of take it as such. So what specific things does Isaiah prophesy are going to happen? What's the first thing? Yeah, so a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son. What else? 
Okay. Uh, maybe. So it doesn't say that this son is going to be of the lineage no, of Ahaz. No, it doesn't. The sign, the sign that he's supposed to ask for is supposed to give evidence that he's going to be okay. So in that sense, the lineage will continue. But it doesn't say the son that's born is going to be part of his lineage. So what else does Isaiah say is going to happen? Okay, the specific name. And his name is going to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay, so that has some significance there, the name. What else is going to happen? Yeah, so before this child is very old at all, Ahaz's enemies are going to be wiped out. And you can understand how, in general, that would be a pretty significant, uh, significant statement, right? Of like, if you say, hey, this woman is going to have a, a baby, and before that baby is old enough to talk, uh, England isn't going to be a nation anymore, right? That would be a scene for like, whoa, okay, like that's a pretty bold statement here. Um, so what things are confusing about this prophecy? I can think of a couple things, and hopefully nobody can think of any things that I didn't think of or else I'm in trouble. Well, the confusing thing is this is supposed to be a sign to Ahaz, and it's not going to happen for a long time. Okay, so it's supposed to be a sign to Ahaz, right? Um, and so that's confusing because we're thinking this is about who? Jesus, right? But it's supposed to be a sign to Ahaz. Okay, so that's confusing. Josh? Yeah, so the, also the use of the word virgin here is really interesting because like, okay, does that mean that like also at this point in time, like it's going to be a virgin or does it mean a young woman? Like what's he talking about? And he doesn't use from in my research what I found. He, the Hebrew word that he uses is Alma, um, which is different than the Hebrew word for like virgin specifically and different for a Hebrew word for like young woman specifically. So it kind of like, could mean one or the other or, or ostensibly both um, depending on like the context and it's kind of a nebulous term that he uses here. It seems like maybe on purpose. So the first thing that's confusing is the use of the term virgin. Like what, is, what are the ramifications of that? And the second thing is if this is assigned to Ahaz but it's about Jesus, how does that work? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so... Uh, Me either, yeah. but I read it, and I'm working on it. Okay, I'm with you then. Uh, yeah, I think, I think for the sake of our discussion, what we probably want to understand is, like, um, it's not necessarily as concrete as, like, virgin in the sense that we think of. Um, okay, so, but kind of back to our second question. If, if this is about Jesus, how is this assigned to Ahaz? And if it's assigned to Ahaz... How could it be about Jesus? All right, so Isaiah chapter 8 starts to answer this question for us. 
So Isaiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Meir Shalal Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerobekiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. All right, so what parallels do you notice in these verses to the prophecy, the sign that is given in chapter 7? Do you see some common commonalities here? Okay, so the, the names. Um, yeah, I think the names are significant. Anybody else have any, see any things? The boy even before he knows how to say. So you've got even before this happens, and they're, they're young. So before he knows right from his mom, before he knows to say my father and mother. Yeah, so it seems like the thing that uh, is supposedly going to be true about the um, child in chapter 7 is also exactly true about this specific child in chapter 8. Um, I think, Adam, you brought up the names. I think that is also significant um, because in chapter 7, the child is given a, a specific name and then this child is given a specific name and the meaning of the name is the spoil speeds and the prey hastens, which seems to refer to judgment on Judah's enemies, and potentially also Judah, but uh, seems to imply the fulfillment of the sign that was given to Ahaz. I think also we see this pattern of like a woman's going to conceive and bear a son and then we see Isaiah's wife conceives and bear a son. That child's going to be given a specific name and then Isaiah's son is given a specific name and then before that child grows up the enemies of Judah are going to be destroyed. So the fulfillment of the sign to Ahaz is this kid. Does that make sense? Do you see how in chapter 7 we see the description of this child and then in chapter 8 you see a kid who sounds pretty much exactly like the kid in chapter 7? Does that make sense? Okay. So uh, now if I've done my job right you might be kind of confused. So what questions might arise um, at this point? What? What questions might, might we think of? Like, what, might, what things might be confusing to us as we're studying through this text? Yeah, how, how could this prophecy apply to Jesus when it was shown here as being fulfilled in this person? Yeah, so how does this apply to Jesus? Um, what else? Yeah, Belinda. Okay. Yeah, so why, if the child's name is supposed to be called Emmanuel, and Isaiah's kid is the fulfillment, why isn't his name Emmanuel, right? Okay, 
Anybody have any thoughts on that? Real hopeful idea. Okay. Um, anybody else? Well, it says that the Lord said, and when the Lord says, you do. Okay. So let me ask you this: Who else is supposed to have their name called Emmanuel? There's somebody else. Jesus. Yeah. Does anybody ever call Jesus Emmanuel? That we know of. Other than the angel. <laughs> but what does the angel tell him? What does the angel tell Joseph to call Jesus? Jesus. Jesus. And he says, to fulfill the prophecy, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Therefore, call his name Jesus. Okay. So you see how that's the same kind of weird? Of like, his kid's, kid's name is supposed to be called Emmanuel, and then his name is Meher Shalal Hashbaz. You're supposed to call this kid's name Emmanuel, and his name's supposed to be Jesus. Okay. Anybody have any thoughts about where this is going before I just, like, give it all away? I have a question. Yeah. And the first one is, hey, you're not going to be destroyed. The second is, hey, Damascus is going to be carried off in Samaria. It's all about Israel, not Judah. Um, yeah, I think those two things are, like, two sides of the same coin of like the reason that, that uh, Judah is in threat of being destroyed is because of those nations. So by those nations being wiped out, Judah is safe. Does that make sense? Yeah, because Israel was a buffer between them and Judah, and then that buffer was gone. And then, so that's why the fear of Yeah, so it would be like uh, the United States is like, you know, Russia and China are getting ready to attack us, and there's a prophecy that Russia and China are going to get wiped out. Well, then they're not going to attack us. And so we would be fine. Does that make sense? Yeah, but... but I'm, I'm, I must not be following you, so I'm just... I, I, to me, it's like, what would prevent them from moving on in and taking over? So they've taken Damascus and Syria off, right? So at this point in time, Judah, yeah, Judah, and think of Samaria is also at this point in time, like, I think kind of related to uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, right? So think, you've got Syria, and you've got Israel, and then you've got Judah, and and Isaiah's talking to Judah, and Syria and Israel are getting ready to attack. Does that make sense? Okay. Cool. Um, So the name. Going back to kind of what we were talking about of the idea of archetypes. The name Emmanuel isn't necessarily like a literal, like it's going to be on his birth certificate. The name Emmanuel is the concept of an archetype or a role, right? So it's a, it's a person whose name signifies the presence of God, right? So in the case of Isaiah's son, his name indicates the presence of God in judgment upon the enemies of Judah, right? In the case of Judah, or in the case of Jesus, he indicates the presence of God because he's God. Now, what else, kind of with that in mind, if this prophecy is just about Isaiah's son, how is it also about Jesus? What's the difference between Emmanuel being applied to 
Mayor Shalal Hashbaz and his name implying the idea of God being with us and the idea of Jesus implying God being with us. What's the difference in that scenario? Okay, uh, I think you're right. Um, if, if Isaiah's son's name is God with us, is that different from the meaning when Jesus' name is God with us? And why? Jesus is actually God. Jesus is actually God, right? So what we want to see is the immediate prophecy to Ahaz has an application that is assigned to him, Right? But then Jesus is the escalation of this prophecy, right? Uh, Isaiah's son is a sign of what's going to happen. Jesus is the escalation of that, of now you have God's presence, not just in the sign of Isaiah's son, but also in actually now you have the son of God in human form in your presence. And so when this prophecy is talking about Jesus and Matthew references it, what he's saying is, you had this sign that you know from Isaiah of God's judgment on Judah's enemies and protection. Now, there's once again this sign, but this time it's an escalation because the child whose name means God with us is actually God with you. Does that make sense? Cool. Okay, we're running out of time, and there's one more thing I want to get to. Okay, so this is also a really cool thing. So after this happens, Isaiah says, has more prophecy, and this is what he says in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among, among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Okay, so you see there in verse 18 the idea that Isaiah's kids are signs um, from, the, from the Lord, right? So tying back to the idea of there's the children who are signs and then there's the escalation of it in Jesus. Okay, so now turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll start reading in verse 10. For it was fitting that he... For, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, fear, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people." For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, so the Hebrew author quotes from a couple different places. 
In verse 13, anybody recognize where he's quoting from? Or have a, a side note in your Bible? Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8. Okay. What we just read. So what point is Isaiah making in, in those verses in the context of Isaiah? His children are signs, and specifically they're signs that God is going to deliver Israel from the thing that they're afraid of, these attacking nations. Um, but his children are signs from God that God is going to protect them, and so there's no need to be afraid. What point is the Hebrew author using, uh, quoting Isaiah from, from Isaiah, what, what point is he using those quotations to make? Exactly. So, in the context of Hebrews 2.13, when it says, I will put my trust in him, the person talking there is not now Isaiah. It is Jesus. What is it that he is trusting God to do? Yeah, so he, he is trusting God that he is going to defeat Satan and bring many sons to glory. So just as it is certain in Isaiah's time that God is going to deliver his people from the threat that they're facing in Isaiah chapter 7, that same faithfulness of God is also applied to the certainty that he is going to bring us, his sons, to glory through Christ and through Christ's sufferings. So in the same way that Matthew chapter 1 is quoting Isaiah 7 as prophecy, Hebrews 2 is quoting this passage from Isaiah 8. And so the idea that Isaiah's children are signs and portents in Israel is then escalated in us. We are signs and portents as adopted children of God in the United States, in the world, of the gospel. So what, as we wrap up, might be some practical applications of that thought, that we are signs and portents for God? Yeah, so I think you bring up a good point up there of like the way that we walk, and in particular, walking in a way that uh, puts our confidence in God to deliver us. Yeah, any other thoughts? So as we think about being signs, 
similar to, to Chip's point, is there will be pain. Sin brings pain, but avoiding sin also brings pain. Um, and part of our signship is that we uh, accept the pain and trouble that can come to our life for avoiding sin because we have faith that he'll intercede for us and care for us. Yeah, I love that. I think there's a sense in which, like, as signs, we are also responsible to walk worthy of the calling. And part of that, yeah, means accepting the pain of denying sin in order to be effective signs of the gospel to a lost world. All right, thank you guys for your time. Hopefully that, that made sense. If anybody has any questions about that or just, like, didn't like it, uh, would welcome feedback. Uh, <laughs> um, but hopefully that made sense and you guys enjoyed it. Thank you.